house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. this company 972 million dollars i'm sorry <laughs> i got fired by a film i cry a lot lately i got dumped by an ellen do you love me yes good i'll, I'll call and then when things couldn't get any worse drew it's your sister i have some really bad news i'll bring him home Louisville, Kentucky, huh? Home business or family? My dad. He's okay, right? He's... Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that lives in its very own house of mirth. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with my manic pixie dream girl, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello. Um, uh, never been introduced as a manic pixie dream girl. Get used to I... it. It's the new thing every week. <laughs> um, uh, allow me to uh, come up and uh, be annoying when you are just trying to sleep on a plane. Um, you can't see it, but Chris is taking a, an imaginary photo of me with his little uh, finger uh, camera. Oh, so. that, that's, that I would like adorable. to think if I... Uh, I hope it's adorable because I guess I'm doing it. But um, I would hope to think that if I was a manic pixie dream girl, I would be less, you know, um, of a full-blown psychopath the way that Kirsten Dunst is in this film. And I would hope to maybe be more of like a Clementine. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, Um, Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like Clementine gets a bad rap of, from uh, Internal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind as a manic pixie dream girl because th- there's a lot of that movie is indeed about her character. But we can get into the, the it ins treats and outs. her like she is one, but really like she is sane. Like she's maybe an asshole, but like Joel. But she's a character. She's sucks. a real character. I don't know, but she right. yeah, she's a real person. She's a <laughs> we'll conceivable human from the planet Earth. So like Claire, yeah, before. Yes. <laughs> Unlike a lot of people, I would say in Elizabethtown, but we're going to get into it. And before mm-hmm. we do, uh, we should bring in our guest because we have a special guest here for this episode on Elizabethtown who specially asked to talk I about did, Elizabethtown. So um, that we, I, I have many questions. And um, but to introduce him, this is uh, a writer and producer. He's the co-creator of the Fox series Sleepy Hollow and the podcast Like It's 1999 podcast, where you might have heard me once upon a time talk about Mila Jovovich and uh, Joan of Arc. Uh, also the 1980 uh, podcast Like It's 1989 Patreon spinoff, which is also a very fantastic podcast. Uh, Phil Iskov, welcome to this. Thank Oscar you Bars. so much for having me and for letting me talk about this movie. I know that I pestered you perhaps too much about it. <laughs> So we'll get into Elizabethtown yes. very shortly, and I do want to definitely talk about um, the reasons why you requested yeah. this and why this film sort of has the reputation Indeed. that it has. And obviously, we'll get into the ins and outs of this. But for all of our 
first-time guests, we do want to lead with the question that we sort of ask everybody, which is talk to us a little bit about what we what we tend to call it your Oscars origin story. What sort of what's the earliest memory you have of being aware of the Oscars, being interested in the Oscars, like if if you are indeed right. a person of sort of uh, Oscar watching extraction, where did it all begin? Um, I am a person of Oscar uh, uh, love, I guess, to some degree. Um, but I, I would say that for me, it probably started in 93 is my guess. I mean, that was when I was sort of really uh, activated, if you will, when it came to like movies. Right. I was 13. Um, you know, Spielberg had a very big year uh, with Schindler's List and, and Jurassic Park. And I was a huge ER fan. Like it all kind of started around then. And I certainly vividly remember watching um, the 1993 Academy Awards when he went for Schindler's List. And I have some sort of vague recollection of Sounds of the Lambs year, but again, I, I, I really couldn't pinpoint it. Whereas I do remember yeah. sitting in front of my television set recording those Oscars and certainly watching his acceptance speech many times over. The Spielberg thing is an underrated, I think, uh, entry point into the Oscars for especially people who are our yeah. age. If you were 13 that year, so was I. So we are... Uh, we're the same age there. And I think that's true that Spielberg was sort of one of the early directors who you knew about if you were getting into movies. He was a personality. He was, you know, you saw him, you know, animated on Tiny Toons, right. like that kind of a thing. Yeah. Right? Where it's just sort of like you knew, you knew his face, you knew his sort of reputation. And if you were a kid, you knew that like Steven Spielberg, in addition to the other types of movies that he made, but like he made a lot of movies that kids watched. He made Hook and he made E.T. And I don't know why I put Hook yeah, in front of Yeah, I was going to say, that's okay. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> I guess at that age, I probably would have, though. Yeah. Like, obviously, like we watched E.T. when we were kids on VHS or whatever. But like, I, you know, had my little VHS of Hook that we recorded off of the Disney Channel and watched that a lot. I was really into like um I I got into merchandising early shall we say and I was really into like movie versions of board games and I fully had the hook board oh, game wow. where it was like Ooh. there was a plank you would walk and you spun a little wheel and it's Peter trying to like find his kids or like whatever it was Oh uh, wow I was very cool. into Hook. I had the McDonald's Hook toys. That is a piece of memorabilia I would love to see if like anybody, if any of our listeners yeah, has has that, that Hook board game still in a closet somewhere. I would love to get, get Oh, a trust look at and that. believe. Um I my sister and I have talked about like buying on eBay the board games that <laughs> yeah. like, we played as kids. We had an Adams Family board game which was basically a card game that also had a board. It was very strange, but like yeah, we've talked about like buying them on eBay. Uh not inexpensive. <laughs> yeah, no, I imagine quite expensive at this at this stage yeah i i think that I what think if... you're saying is true joe that like spielberg was the first i mean i don't want to say the first but certainly one of for our generation the first household name director um and yeah and even not knowing much about um excuse me i just sneezed uh my apologies um <laughs> not knowing much about the oscars i knew he never won one like i knew it was a big deal that he, right. that he had never won so when yeah. he won, it felt seismic, even to a 13-year-old who didn't know much about it. Right. Like, I, I at that age, 
hadn't watched Schindler's List, certainly not before that Oscars. I'm pretty sure the first time I ever saw Schindler's List, they showed it to us in school. Like they wheeled in a TV on a cart and they showed it to us in school. I, I, um, my, my, and, so my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So I actually, I went to see it with them. So I was 13. Oh, I wow. The theater with them. And it was, I, 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 as much as I said that, you know, thir- oh, 13 shit. was a big sort of year for me where I felt like, you know, activated. It was also seeing that movie was a big reason why I wanted to, work in movies and do all that sort of stuff so like that sure kind of, mm-hmm. uh yeah it was a big year yeah that's well and the fact that it was that movie and jurassic yeah. park yes. the classic yes. sort of art house and uh yeah. populist yeah. sort of movies yeah. at once that totally. was that that makes a lot of sense as sort of an entry totally. point year what's also funny about that year is that was the only I think kid winning an Oscar of our lifetime and, and yet representing a movie that like, I wouldn't see for like several years after the fact, uh, the piano, a movie that I love now, of course, but like, that was not a movie that appealed to 13 year olds. Although I, (laughs) well, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think we've talked about before watching that movie on uh, one of the like premium channels and sort of, you know, sneaking a peek at that scene where you see Harvey Keitel's yep. penis, where it was just like, I don't know what's going on in my life, but like, this is something that I really feel like I'm going to have to hide from people. Yeah. Um, Good movie. But Good yeah, movie. that was a really interesting yeah. year. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. Phil, when we've talked about you coming on the show, because obviously you guys were uh, very, very uh, gracious to have me Absolutely. on uh, your podcast, and we talked about sort of the Oscar adjacent case of. The Messenger, the story of Joan of Arc, yeah. and how uh, Mila had this sort of very tangential Oscar buzz that I saw on a episode of Entertainment Tonight and then never again. <laughs> um, that was my angle. That was They were just like, let's talk about something that has an Oscar angle. I'm like, well, here's the thing. I watched one episode of Entertainment Tonight, and yeah. I decided that this movie had that uh, really Oscar sums buzz. up but, Oscar buzz for the record. I right? mean, and it had Faye Dunaway, right, in the 90s. Yeah, and Dustin yeah. Hoffman. Not yeah. like Faye Dunaway showing up in the Bye Bye Man today. It's like, <laughs> right. is, wait, is Dustin Hoffman, why do I remember from the trailers from that movie I haven't seen, is Dustin Hoffman like a religious imaginary friend Correct. in that movie? He's exactly, exactly that. He that is, is exactly okay. what he is. Yeah. He is That's... the Eve of Mila Jovovich's Lila. Yes. <laughs> That's perfect. I love that you remember which one is fake and which one is uh, is real in Lila and Eve. I will never be able to uh, to differentiate that, but I will remember that twist always. All I'll say um, is that a movie where Jennifer Lopez's Viola Davis's imaginary friend should be better. It, it should, should just be, better. be inherently yeah. a better yeah. movie. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but yes. Phil, you had uh, wanted to guest on the show, and you specifically wanted to guest on the show to talk about Elizabethtown mm-hmm. and to kind of offer a defense of this movie that has definitely been <laughs> maligned pretty much since like it came out. Like I yeah. feel like a lot of movies sort of go through an arc of like initial like hype and then backlash and then sort of like years later reappreciation and like the arc of elizabethtown is a straight line and it is a straight line sort of like it's very low it's a very low straight line there was no i think once people saw that movie there was no like let's take a moment to appreciate elizabethtown so that this is why i'm like and not to like put you on the spot and like have you like give a defense of your thesis or whatever but like 
Um, I'm very, very, uh, and of course, like, cause Cameron Crowe is a filmmaker who I love. And like, we're going to definitely get into the ins and outs of the movie. So like, yeah. don't feel like you need to like present your whole, but like, why, why Elizabeth? <laughs> well, okay. So there's a bunch of things. For, first and foremost, I would say that, um, I am a Cameron Crowe apologist in a lot of ways. I, I, I do really love yeah. these movies. I, and I think part of the reason why I do and why I think other people do is that, um, no one is allowed to do what he does anymore, including himself, it seems at this point. Um, but he kind of grew out of literally the James L. Brooks world. I mean, James L. Brooks produced Say Anything. And you can sort of right. see a lot of corollaries between their, their filmographies in a lot of ways. Um, but they're just, they're not, they're, they're character pieces, right? And they're sort of kitchen sink movies, specifically, um, you know, Jerry Maguire tries to do so much and it somehow kind of pulls it off. Um, and then he thinks he can do that for the rest of his career and shows that he can't really do that anymore. And this, I'm glad you brought that up because that was a thought that I definitely had watching this movie specifically, which is it makes me appreciate the difficulty of what Jerry Maguire was able to pull off. And like, Mm -hmm. I am not, I am not the biggest Tom Cruise fan in the world. I tend like, I don't hate him, but like everybody else likes him enough for, for everybody. And like, I will, you know, y'all can do that. But like this movie really made me appreciate what he was able to do in Jerry Maguire, because I'm just like, maybe that was a lot more difficult than I gave it credit for because you watch a movie like Elizabethtown and you're just like, Oh, this is where it can fall apart. At least. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, so when I, um, I mean, I, I, my favorite camera crow film is almost famous, which, uh, is a movie that is probably Mm -hmm. his most, obviously his most personal, but, but the least plotty of any of his movies and his movies generally don't have much, plot, but that one is very much plotless. Um, yeah. And he comes off of, obviously, wins the Academy Award for Almost Famous. He's got Jerry Maguire. He's got the wind in his back and he makes uh, Vanilla Sky. <laughs> and a movie that is probably more maligned than this or maybe equally maligned as this. Like, it's a movie that's way out of his wheelhouse for all intents and purposes. It's very plotty. Um, it's a kind of yes. bizarro, Twilight zone pop culture-y thing, which I personally don't hate. But I understand why people didn't like it and why. I feel but. like when I talk about like the arc of Elizabeth Town, like not having an arc, I feel like at least Elizabeth or at least Vanilla Sky. And maybe this is more my mm-hmm. own feelings coming into play where like, I think it's a fascinating so, failure. So and I think with movies mm-hmm. that are fascinating failures, there is a little bit of like an uptick of just like, maybe let's at least like talk about this movie maybe let's at least like give it it's sort of room to well that's that's the uh, blank check of it all, right like that's the, it, when, when they yes. did his his filmography on, on the blank check podcast in my opinion that's that's the quote-unquote normal yes. failure if you will and yeah. everything he's done since connects to that like everything is a course correction off of that film um and yeah. and none of them quote-unquote work Right. Because it's like he's he's and that's why I'm fascinated by this film in particular, because this is him thinking he's doing what we want him to do. Right. Uh, this is back to basics. Right. This is him this is going back yeah. to, yes. back to the and yeah. yet it's him doing a lot of what Vanilla Sky yeah. does, which is like him adapting his own Tumblr into yes. a movie. Yes. 
um, where it's like, here's a post on Bob yep. Dylan. Um, and But it's like Vanilla Sky is like a movie where you get to a certain point and you realize, oh, 75% of what I've just seen isn't yep. real. So it explains this like heightened reality or like uh, false reality to it and like these weird obsessions with certain scenes and these like things that don't make any sense or like people behaving like human beings just don't behave. And it's like, he does all of that in Elizabeth town, but forgets that he's trying to do real. People. No, I, I agree. I, 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 just to be abundantly clear for, for your listeners and for you guys, like I see this movie <laughs> works at all and I'm not really going to ride yeah. for quite frankly, a good chunk of it. But the stuff that does work for me really works for me, which is why I want to come yeah. on here and try and give it its its day in court. I'm curious. I'll be honest. I used to fully be with you, and this, <laughs> like, I used to be like, you know, for what this movie is actually attempting to right. do, it's very earnest, and like, this movie did, I will say, arrive probably right at the moment that the final nail in the coffin of earnestness was slammed. So yeah. it's like it fully kind of became a movie for almost no one. <laughs> um, correct. Correct. But like I used to be in the tank for this movie and watching it this time was a little bleak. I'm like, I'm somebody who could sit here and defend Vanilla Sky right now. And I may be a little afraid to go back and watch Vanilla Sky because I'm afraid I'll have a similar experience. I'm curious to see, I'm curious to know whether anybody has ever really gone deep on a Cameron Crowe, Quentin Tarantino sort of uh, duality. Because it's curious to me that both of those are filmmakers who deal in the sort of film as a mixtape kind of genre, where Mm -hmm. it is a very sort of obvious patchwork of influences and obsessions and pieces of these two... two filmmakers seem very obviously raised on pop culture and reflect that in their filmmaking. And they have very different interests. Like they're they're the difference in their age probably isn't that much. I don't think there's that much of a, of a gulf between them. If you know much of anything, but I think Crow's interests, he was the young kid who looked up to that sort of baby boomer generation ahead of him. And Tarantino was very, very much in the sort of Gen X video store, um, you know, probably sent away for a lot of VHS tapes of like rarities and, and that kind of thing. And obviously like we, we know their respective genres mm-hmm. very well, right? Like Cameron Crowe was very much like your dad's music and that uh, sort of, classic rock generation like tom petty's always on the soundtrack and tarantino is going for a comparatively more esoteric set of references so i feel like even when even when tarantino is just sort of like a bucket of pastiche stuff it feels comparably edgier and cooler and it's it's he doesn't easily fall into a sort of sappy uh, rut that Crow can, because Crow, when Crow gets sort of um, cliched, he gets cliched in a way that feels very uh, dad-ish, well, I, you know, for for lack of a better. I think term. that's I think that's an, an apt and interesting comparison. I would I I think that um, 
I think that the, the, the problem, if you will, with Cameron Crowe is that uh, he's just really not interested in, in plot. Um, and right. and he, he gets himself into these jams where, like, he feels like he, something has to happen. Like, fundamentally, I get the impression that Cameron Crowe would much rather be Richard Linklater than Tarantino. Um, he, oh, yeah. he just mm-hmm. wants to hang out and talk. Like he just wants, he just right. it's a vibe, it's a chill thing, and he just wants to kind of have characters that he loves um, talk about. The- but he does seem to also have big ideas. Like I feel like with Jerry Maguire, the idea was: is it possible to be an idealist in a sort of soullessly mm-hmm. capitalist uh, environment? Of you know, and obviously the most soullessly capitalist environment he could find was a sports, sports agent, agent. Yeah. and. I think, you know, in Almost Famous, there's a sense of, you know, can you be, can you essentially be friends with the people that you are trying to sort of objectively place within a cultural and indeed sort of like historical context, right? He's sort of interrogating his own memories in yeah. that movie about just like I would I would say uh, that the major theme in Cameron Crowe's films and it's and and you really can see it in all of his movies is failure. Um, it is, yeah. and it definitely feels like he has a massive fear of failure, which makes me feel kind of bad for him since, you know, the last few years have not been kind to him. Um, right. But that is the over, the, the, the idea of living with failure. Like how do you, yeah. uh, you know, what, and I think that that's a, a great theme because I think it's something that that more people fail than succeed in their lives. Um, and I yeah. think that it's an important thing to be able to realize that you get back up, dust yourself off, and start all over again. Um, there's a there's a great line in, in Vanilla Sky where it's like every day is another chance to turn it all around. Um, you know, there, there's something really lovely about that notion, and I think that it recurs in his movies. It obviously is a big theme in this movie. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I think that that he's, I think he's a lot more interesting a filmmaker than than perhaps uh, people give him credit for. Um, I I think and, that's right. I would agree with that. And, sure. and I do think that this film is a real fulcrum point for him because mm-hmm. had this movie worked, and and I think that this movie has, as I mentioned, a lot of problems. Had this movie worked. Um, I think it could have opened the doors for, for more movies like it. But as you kind of, um, Chris said earlier, like this was the end of, of, of earnestness. Um, and I think he's really struggled with that since like we bought a zoo is such an earnest movie. Um, I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's a fine movie, but like that's definitely him sort of being like, okay, I need to make a successful movie. Um, I'm going to make a cute kind of family ass thing. And it was, I think it was relatively successful, all things considered. Um, but then he makes Aloha, which I don't know if you guys ever. <laughs> I've still never seen Aloha. I couldn't I bring myself to really it. Honestly, like uh, speaking as someone who used to be an ardent defender of Elizabeth town, I sat there watching it this time. <laughs> and I was like, there's just no way that uh, Aloha is this bad. Like Aloha can't be worse than this. Uh, it is. <laughs> oh God. I mean, oh God. I will say this. Aloha is. So I worked at UTA as an assistant for almost eight years when I first moved to, to Los Angeles. And um, the first script I read 
when I was in the, uh, the mailroom was this script. It had come out just around this time or leaked or however you want to call it. And I was so excited to read this script. And I actually really liked this script, or at least the script that was written. The script that was written was not the one that was shot necessarily. Um, when you say this script, you're talking, talking about, about Elizabeth Town or Aloha? Um, because okay. I'll come back to Aloha in one second, but I'll just say that um, that reading the script for this was a fascinating experience for me because it was one of the first times that I had read a, you know, uh, not a, a a published version of a script, right? Those yeah. scripts are not really the scripts in a lot of ways. They're the, right. the shooting script right. as opposed to reading something before it actually gets shot and seeing the differences mm-hmm. between those two things. The reason I bring up uh, this is because I read a script for Aloha, <clears throat> excuse me, before, many years before it was made, and it was called Deep Tiki originally. Okay. I think I remember that title. <laughs> and uh, Ben Stiller and Reese Witherspoon were attached to it. Uh-huh. And it was, if you can imagine Jerry Maguire meets Joe versus the Volcano, that's what it was. Oh, Okay. okay. So it's like this Ben Stiller character is this sort of um, very kind of um, corporate, what have you. He's sent to Hawaii um, to deal with, I, I think it was with some some um, appropriation of land or what have you. And his company needed him to sort of help with this island or what have you. And then at the end of the movie, they have to like throw all, it's the most Cameron Crowe, the least subtlest thing in the world where they have to throw all these artifacts into this volcano to like stop the volcano from erupting. And it's like all these records and movies. It's just fucking crazy. Oh my God. It's crazy. Ben Stiller is such an odd choice for a Cameron Crowe movie because yes. as we said, like Cameron Crowe is so earnest and Consider Ben the time, Stiller. Though. Ben St- but 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 when Ben Stiller tries for earnest, yep. I mean, we talked about Secret Life of Walter Mitty on this podcast before. Like when Ben Stiller tries for that kind of earnestness, yeah. it just falls completely flat, and it's oh, it's so oh, that, like I what a disaster. Yeah, and, they, and those are uh, two people that I mean, that's I don't see chemistry between those two people either. Um, no, yeah, <laughs> it, it was just it was a fascinating thing, and it got pretty far along. Like if I remember correctly, this it was in like pre production. Like they were ready to to make it happen. And then the wheels came off the wagon for whatever reason. Um, And Aloha is a scaled back, much more uh, reverent of, of Hawaii, of Hawaiian culture, even if they did cast on the stone. Um, Yeah. (laughs) um, But it is definitely, uh, I'm going to say this, Aloha, first of all, you guys should watch it because I'd be genuinely very curious to hear what you think of it. And, Maybe we'll have to do well, an episode. It, I mean, we it, it actually should at some point. Quite frankly, I mean, it did everything that he's made has you yeah. know since e- even after Aloha. If Cameron Crowe had a movie launched right now, somebody yeah. would be talking about it in that context, exactly. right? Because it could be a comeback exactly. vehicle. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I'll, I'll just say this one last thing about Aloha. Um, Aloha has one of my favorite final scenes in a Cameron Crowe movie. The movie's a mess. I'm not going to sit here and write for the movie, but. It has a wordless, beautiful scene at the end of the movie that almost makes it worthwhile. Um, and it, it, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think Elizabeth Town has two sequences in it that in the script were much longer. 
which is the phone call at the center of the of the film between um, Drew and Claire and uh, and Drew's road trip journey at the end. And those two things right. are really beautifully expanded and unpacked in the script. And then in the movie, you just get the impression that that studio, whoever, like, let's move this along. Like, we, we, right, right. Let's like, get past, get past this. this. Whereas yeah. those are actually, for me, those are my favorite parts of the movie. So we're definitely going to talk yeah. about that for sure, because I think those two sequences are the ones that sort of stand out yeah, in the movie yeah, yeah. for you know a lot of different reasons. But before we yes. get to that, uh, we do have uh, the portion mm-hmm. of the podcast where we have our guest uh, <laughs> take a minute to describe the plot of the sure. film. And I've got my little stopwatch out there, oh, okay. Phil, if you feel like okay. you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. All right. So I will start uh, when I say go, and then you'll have one minute to uh, depict the plot of Elizabeth. Okay. Are you? I'm ready. Okay. All right. Begin now. Oh wait. Sorry. Before that, <laughs> I'm sorry. I have to. I, I forgot. We got a. We got a movie. We got it. We got to lay yeah. it out. That was not psychological warfare okay. on my part, Phil. I'm very sorry. <laughs> I was not being the Alec Baldwin trying to like ruin your. Uh... What does Claire say, by the way, about people named Phil? I wanted to write They're that down, and I totally apparently. forgot about They're it. Dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. You can't trust them. I don't know if I agree with that one. I, I, I context, thoroughly okay. disagree, and I remember that line all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a slander. A yeah, slander against, against Phil. All right. Okay. We are talking about Elizabeth Town, written and directed by Cameron Crowe. It is starring Orlando Bloom, Kirsten Dunst, Susan Sarandon. It is our third Susan Sarandon in the last like five episodes, which we've done completely accidentally because <laughs> the last two were guests, uh, were choices of our guests. Listen, and our guests love Susan. Yeah. Our guests particularly love Susan Sarandon movies that target on the death of a particular member of a family. We have now had a Susan Sarandon dead daughter movie, a Susan Sarandon dying mother movie, and now a Susan Sarandon dead what father movie. What was so the like, first one? Uh, Moonlight uh, Mile. Mile. Well, that was just us, though. We did not have a guest for that. Right. That one we chose, and then our guests uh, brought more Susan. And listen, I love Susan Sarandon. I mean, this almost so wasn't going to but we'll talk about that. Right. There was almost yep. wasn't a lot of people yep. in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that yeah. for sure. Um, Judy Greer also, Paul Schneider, Alec Baldwin, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. Jessica Biel, Bruce McGill, Loudon Wainwright III, and of course, uh, Queen of Southern Cooking and uh, <laughs> Plantation Apologist, Paula Dean. <laughs> this movie premiered at the Venice Film Festival on September 4th, 2005. It opened for real on October 14th. I wrote down 2015 but that's not correct it did not sit on the shelf for a decade although it might have uh october 14th also a very very famous tiff bomb one of the uh, rare like disastrous screening i can't i was trying to think of it too as like a point of comparison like how poorly this movie did and the reviews that it got at tiff and like i can't think of a comparable i mean the goldfish is the only one i can think of but i don't know if the goldfish that's that's maybe fair TIFF was the first screening of it. I think it might have premiered somewhere else. I could be wrong. But I remember TIFF right. being I, like, this movie's not a player. <laughs> yeah, like but, immediately cratered. Yeah. yeah. And even that one, they didn't like go and re-edit the Goldfinch after no. uh, the TIFF screening. And no, because it opened like two days later. <laughs> right, right. I mean, Elizabeth Town only opened like a month after. Yeah. that. Like that was a quick re-edit that they had to do to get Which that thing. Feel? Uh, I tried to figure theaters. out what they cut out, and it sounds like the ending was even longer. That's the the yeah. stuff, and they just chunked. Yeah, it. they 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 chopped off. I think they it's like eighteen minutes got pulled from the film, and I think 
uh, the, a good chunk of that is um, is Drew's road trip at the end, which does feel truncated. And but, you know. There's a lot of stuff in the middle that feels like it could have been pruned instead, but maybe it was just different people with different ideas about what yeah, this movie well, uh, was. I, I, I apologize for stuff that was, that was kind of... And why. All right. Now, for real, yeah, though, yeah. Phil, I'm going to give you 60 seconds okay. to the plot of this film. All right. Uh, I am going to start now. Uh, okay. So, Elizabethtown revolves around Drew Baylor. He's a young shoe designer. Uh, he designs this shoe for this company that's run by Alec Baldwin, uh, and it's an enormous failure. They lose $972 million, and it's it's an absolute disaster. Uh, and he is it, it, it sends him into such a spiral that he considers suicide, and uh, as he's about to to commit suicide, his sister calls him to tell him that his father has died uh, in Kentucky, uh, where he's originally from, his father, that is, uh, and that he needs to go to Kentucky to, um, to essentially retrieve his father's body, for lack of a better way of putting it. On the, in the process, on a plane ride to Kentucky, he meets Claire, played by Kirsten Dunst, who is this very sort of sunny flight attendant who um, becomes sort of his, uh, his guardian angel, if you will. 10 seconds. That's all I got. They fall in love. All right. Beautiful. <laughs> all right. Yes, that is sort of, that's sort of where the plot kind of uh, falls off. Yeah, then it's a but, little um, with, with some meandering stuff. <laughs> with a lot of, like, local color yeah, and a lot of, like, good. shots of Paul Schneider not controlling his kid. Yeah. And, like, there's, yeah. yeah. Um, Paul Schneider, Paul Schneider, who I normally love is the most annoying character device <laughs> in this movie to me. Where it's just like, I like what Cameron Crowe mm-hmm. is going for, the vibe and such, but at one point you have him saying, I want to teach my son about Abraham Lincoln and Ronnie Van Sant because they're both important. And I'm like, okay, Cameron Crowe. Um, <laughs> no. There's, I mean, to your point, and I, I agree, um, I think that this is a perfect example of stuff that felt... Um, like widows or things that were cut and trimmed. Like I know what he's going for, which is he wants to he wants to talk about fathers and sons. Like that's what he thinks the film is. One of the myriad of things he thinks the film is about. Um, so right. there's this kind of weird appendage of this Paul Schneider storyline and Landon Wainwright that just never fully forms. I would argue that the same thing could be said about the Susan Sarandon. Judy Greer stuff as well, which never fully yeah. takes flight because it feels like it's from a different movie. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the thing. And I think the fact that this movie sort of, this movie hooks its emotional sort of impact on two things. One of which is the sort of road trip montage yes. that I think in a better constructed movie, and I think if you take one particular thing out of that montage, that there's a version (laughs) of the movie that works. I think you have to take everything in Memphis about Martin Luther King out of that. It is a absolute disaster. It is shocking. It is shocking. I'm not going to run for it. It's so... It was was then, and it's it's like even more now. Don't kill yourself. Martin Luther King existed, Orlando Bloom. It's, it's well, and to like with you two and to punctuate, it's crazy. It's it's to punctuate that with you two and to do it for as long as he does. It's just it's crazy. It's insane. But to like scatter yeah, parts of his dad's ashes, ashes at yeah, the it's site. It's like there's yeah. no excuse for but it. But like if you take if you take that part out of the ending montage and you set that up better and you sort of let it uh, breathe in a way that feels organic and not like filibustery yes. then i think there is a version of the movie that works that way but i think you have to then make your choices and your choices have to be 
we're just going to make the mother character a very small part of this throughout. And I think the problem is the movie makes her a small character and then expects you to think that she's a major character. And by the time she shows up and like does the little like tap dance comedy act and then a tap dance and like that feels like such a showcase scene and it's just like but we don't know who she is and like even the fact that like she shows up and you don't even see her interacting with these family members that seemingly hate her and that like there's this tension and it's just like let us see that let us play it out rather than let her be a little bit of an asshole too because it's like much like the other female characters in this movie it's like they're put on this weird pedestal that never kind of lets them be people. So it's like, I think it might've been, and you also cast Sarandon too. So it's like, let her be a little prickly. Like she shows up and she's just sunshine and roses with all these people that hate her. Like, I I fully agree I with you guys a hundred percent. I think that uh, there's a couple things that come to mind as you were saying that, the, the first is um, if it's a movie about fathers and sons, I know that he made a concerted effort for Drew's father to, uh, not be a character. Um, he's more of right. this sort of um, whatever people. Th- th- he's this apparition, if you will, and he's a memory. Right. He's a he's a concept, yeah. which which I and we don't really get much sense of what their relationship is exactly. like exactly. at all. So it's like it's the idea of a father more than a relationship. Absolutely, and I think that that was a big mistake. Um, I, I think that. That yeah. the father's character should have just been. We should have seen him in flashbacks. We should. He should have been fleshed out. Um, he should have been played by a, a you know recognizable know. character yeah. actor. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that that's that's a pretty significant mistake. Um, I would say the other thing that came to mind uh, is that <laughs> they don't feel like a family. I've never seen three actors in a shot together yeah. that I'm like I don't believe any of you are even friends. Right. Alone. Um, that you're a family. (laughs) So like, it's, that's a bizarre thing. And then the other thing is we just did an episode on parenthood, uh, for our 89 Patreon Mm -hmm. and watching that so close to watching this, you're really hit with, wow. First of all, parenthood's a masterpiece, but also like none of these people feel lived in as much as, you know, when you think about that sequence of him, of Drew first getting to Kentucky and meeting the Baylors and you know what he wants. He wants this sort of chaotic mm-hmm. familial energy, but it's just chaos and the jokes don't really land. And it's all kind of messy and annoying in a way that uh, isn't <laughs> endearing. Um, so all of that sort of compounds exactly what you're talking about, which is the female characters and the mother and, and, and just all of it just unfortunately just doesn't congeal. Yeah. So I wanted to sort of talk very briefly yes. about the movie that we all, the casting that we almost got because this this um for, sort of very famously went through some big yes. casting changes mm-hmm. initially um Ashton Kutcher including while filming yes, exactly. right right Ashton Kutcher had they started to film with Ashton Kutcher was that Correct. the deal and that it wasn't yes. working yes. and they stopped they okay. also so, closed a deal with Heath Ledger before all of this if I'm not mistaken Oh, that I didn't know about. That's really interesting. Sure. See, because I was I was looking at the rest of the casting choices, and I'm like, maybe this was just sort of cursed from the break. Because like, if it wasn't going to be Ashton Kutcher, it was probably going to be Sean William Scott. Ooh. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I've I've liked Sean William Scott in things, but like, I don't that know would never have if that really works. That would have been a nightmare. And 
The closest one of the names that I found through my research that would have made some sense was uh, Chris Evans. Yeah. That's still not quite right because he's also kind of, Cameron Crowe's going a little bit for this kind of like screwball, you can see like influences and like older like Preston Surges type of movies. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you're not going to get that from any of these like young actors that he's looking at, like Ashton Kutcher. I think that. Right. It's, it's. I I, I fully agree with you. Um, Chris, I think that it's a symptom of there was a real kind of lack of um, I don't want to but like a lack of really great young male actors at this time that at least had some sense of stardom. Like they, they clearly wanted us. So they wanted mm-hmm. someone that was going to get people in the seats. Uh, That's just the yeah, yes. problem. Um, right. So there was just really no one out there. When I read about the Heath Ledger thing, that made me go like, I mean, maybe, but Heath Ledger's not a comedian per se. Like, I'm not sure that, I mean, maybe he works. I don't know. He certainly would have had the, I would have bought the sadness. Um, but I don't know what actors could make these, like, characters work more. Though they were the right Heath on Ledger the precipice. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, they were right on the precipice of being able to cast somebody like Jake Gyllenhaal, yes. who yes. I do feel like mm-hmm. would have worked Yes, better. yes. It would have felt very similar to, like, what Jake Gyllenhaal eventually had to, like, work yeah. away from with, like, yes. the sad boy with the, like, greasy bangs. But um. I feel like that part of his sort of uh, uh, vibe at that stage would have maybe worked in his favor in this in the, to a degree. In that, like, he's sort of trying to emerge from that. But also the fact that it was Kirsten Dunst in the female role, they were dating dating maybe right at that time. So maybe not. Or during filming, yeah. Yeah. They're interesting actors to talk about during this time because, like, it did really strike me researching for this episode that it premieres at the same festival where Brokeback Mountain premieres and launches both of those young actors into, like, much more respect in a way that, like, this movie failed to do um the other thing that i think is interesting mm-hmm. is that kirsten dunst to do this movie yeah. had to drop out of the village which i feel like is kind of an out of the frying pan into the fire kind <laughs> of a deal anyway in that just like i'm not sure like i know there are a lot of there are people out there who do stick up for the village i am not one i'm of one those of those people yeah i am not um <laughs> but i'm not sure I don't know. I'm just not so sure. And I'll, I'll, I'll just ahead. say this. I, I think that, um, you know, Kevin Crow jumped up and down about how, you know, Orlando Bloom was his first choice. I, I don't buy it, yeah. but, you know, as a director, no. you know, he no. wants us all to believe that this was the right guy. I think because he knew that sure. it wasn't really working and he just really wanted to convince yeah. people that this was the way it was always supposed to be. But right. Orlando Bloom does have his moments in this movie where it's working. They're, they're few and far between, but there are moments where he does lock in and I see what Cameron Crowe might have thought he could get out of him, but he just doesn't have, yeah. the, he just doesn't have the depth and the range to be able to pull this off. Um, on the Kirsten, yes, yeah, I feel like the version of the movie that has no love story in it, but Orlando mm-hmm. Bloom would make so much sense and he would be more right for that movie because like the parts that actively don't work for me with him is 
the love story. Whereas like the family stuff, like it makes sense that this character who is kind of like isolated and off up his own ass in his career <laughs> that like he can't connect yeah. to people. And like Orlando Bloom is not really great with connecting to his scene partners. I agree. Um, I agree. So, like, that stuff makes sense. And it's, like, if a version of this movie exists where there's no love story and you still right. have this, like, road trip type of thing, he could have maybe pulled it off. I also just feel like I Orlando mean... is... This is, this, is the, this is the beginning of the end, ultimately. Um, yes. You know, in terms of... It's when the ceiling just comes kind of crashing down on him in terms of what he's capable of. And, but I, I do think that I feel for him a little bit there was a lot of issues getting him because of scheduling with the uh, kingdom of heaven, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And right. Like, that's pretty unfair to get this, to pull this guy out of a giant sweeping, you know, brooding Ridley Scott period piece. And then being like, okay, now be this quirky, funny, like this would have been a stretch for him on a good day. But on top right. of that, the, the, the whiplash of those two roles is pretty brutal. Yeah, I think if you're making Kingdom of Heaven, your mind is in a lot yeah. of, you know, physical spaces and and just sort of dealing with the the great the giant sort of like setups of of what's happening in that movie and you're it's, you know, maybe like a left brain right brain kind of a thing where it's just not yeah. It's not what's. It's in your a bad head. performance that I do not blame the actor for at all. Like this is a role he shouldn't have even been considered yeah. for, so it's not <laughs> his fault. Yeah. Well, and I mean, talking about like being an apologist, like I was an Orlando Bloom apologist for a while. <laughs> I feel like I was such a, I was such a Lord of the Rings person. And again, like not to bring everything back to like my early twenties when I was closeted, but like I was so like he was a very kind of like this sort of like dreamy you know nouveau errol flynn kind of like figure with this sort of the elegance of the of the elf sort of thing <laughs> and then the pirates of the caribbean movies where it's just like his role it's in like those what movies, if that but with a dirty mustache but it's just sort of just like he's like the nice boy of those movies yes. right where like johnny depp is like a giant scumbag and like kira knightley is uh, beautiful, but also like, you know, unexpectedly capable. And she's, you know, fighting along with everybody else. And then like Orlando Bloom is sits in the middle and is just like, what a nice boy in the middle of all of this shenanigans. And I think in the midst of all of that, he's in one sort of not well-regarded movie that I think he's very good in, which is Troy, which I feel like playing the role of Paris in Troy worked mm-hmm. In like allowed him to like do all the things that he does well and allowed him to play a character who is, you know, villainous and preening and sort of and 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 not even villainous, but like weak. He's just like the essential weakness of somebody who looks that pretty. And it really worked for him. And I thought he did better in that role than he got credit for. And I think a lot of the fact that Troy was not really well received by critics kind of just sort of like the brush sort of got painted over everything. I think that is a movie that is a little bit better than it gets credit for, if not like a great movie. And then you're right. Then all of a sudden kingdom of heaven and Elizabeth town. And then it's just like, yeah. Oh, you will only be doing more pirates of the Caribbean movies after this. I, like, that's really I really it. do think that um, watching this movie again yesterday, I was really hit with, um, if Cameron Crowe had waited a couple years, he would have had a much more interesting array of actors yes. to choose from. Mm-hmm. I also do think that there's also the version of this where um, he did pick 
a person of obscurity for Jerry Maguire, right? Like Renee Zellweger was nobody, right? Like, right. Right. She was an indie star. She'd uh, she had either an indie spirit like nomination or a win at but that no, point. I mean, so she like... wasn't a household name by any means, and, and obviously they were they were definitely right. putting all of it on Tom Cruise, which I completely understand. But in an alternate universe where Elizabeth Town, where they go all in on Kirsten Dunst and they get some, you know, a, 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 a nobody quote unquote to play the Drew role that she has real chemistry with, and you make a star. I, I you, yeah. you really maybe there's something there. I, I just and it's not that their chemistry is completely uh, you know devoid. There's there are some nice moments between them. Um, it's not a complete shit show for me. As I said, that's the stuff that I know, Chris. It didn't work for you, but it's the stuff that that did work for me. Um, in terms of 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 their relationship, and it's almost less about the love story as it is their relationship. And I know that I'm splitting hairs a little bit, but like they don't really get romantic much in this movie. Like it's, 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 it's right. more about her mm-hmm. trying to kind of help him through his grief and help him through this, right. you know, this fiasco, as he says that he's dealing with professionally. But I don't know. I, I, some of it worked for me, but, but I, but you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> To me, to me, it's telling that the stuff in the movie that most sells me on their relationship yeah. is the stuff where they're not like actively talking to each other. Like the, the, the phone call mm-hmm. situation where they're essentially on a phone call with each other for something like 13 hours or something like that, or seemingly, um, that we sort of something that our way every through. normal person does. But I, mean, I but the thing is that. And also, like, that works for me. And the idea that just, like, of course, like, it's an extreme depiction. But, like, that to me is the sort of the romance of Cameron Crowe working. And it's got this, you know, Ryan Adams song that I know that, like... He's canceled now, but it's it's a great song. Nobody likes Ryan Adams right now. But but that song was kind of special to me back then. And so, like, it really, like... it brings me back to a time like it, like that was the part of that movie that I was just like, Oh fuck it. Like really like, like just lurched me back in time. That's the, that's the scene for me. I remember reading the script, the the, the scene in the script, I I shit you not, was probably like 10 pages long. Like it was, it was a giant meaty thing that it was clear to me from reading the script that that's kind of where it started for him. Right. He's like, they're going to have like a 10 hour phone call at the middle of this movie. And we're going to watch them fall in love over the course of a phone call. Which, by the way, I kind of love that notion. As as antiquated as it might be today, it kind of worked for me. And then in the movie, it's obviously, you know, deeply truncated. But when that Ryan Adams song kicks in, I, I get goosebumps. Like, it just fucking works. Yeah. And I wish the yeah. whole movie felt like that. I guess this sequence would work so much better for me if it would ar- had already like established a real connection between them. At this point, A, he's trying to avoid her because she's acting like a crazy person. <laughs> um, she just kind of latches herself onto him. It's not recognizable human behavior. But also, like, he's just kind of, aside from his failure and, like, his displacement with the death of his father, there's not really much going there on a character level. And, like, her character dynamic is just, you know, Looney Tunes. 
So, like, it's hard for me. She's at an 110 and he's at, like, a 55. And it's, it's She's tough at to... an 110 that it's like, this is an alien. This is not a person. Well, I think when... I agree. Yeah. And it's like, it's hard to get emotionally invested in that when it's like, I don't feel invested in these characters already. I'll, 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 I don't, I won't disagree. I don't disagree. Um, but I'll say this, what, what it does prove to me is the power of, of a needle drop. Um, it, and it's when the music is doing a lot of heavy lifting, which let's be real, Cameron Crowe tends to do from time to time. Um, yes. Right. The Elton John one, I think, uh, works really well in this right. movie. Like, I think that he knows how to convey, and again, this comes kind of comes back to the Linklater thing of just like, it's a vibe. Right, like he's gonna give you yeah. the right song at the right moment and give you just enough uh, information, if you will, about that character that it will all kind of coalesce for you. But I agree with you, Chris. He's he's given us the bare minimum amount of information on Drew, and perhaps not enough at that. My favorite moment of the two of them, uh, chemist chemistry wise, happens actually after they meet up after the mm-hmm. phone call mm-hmm. when they're sort of sitting overlooking yes. the river. And they're quiet for like a moment, and then she just goes, "Boy, we really peaked on that yeah. phone call." Yeah. And I was just like, "That's yeah. like, I yeah. love that. I love that moment." Yes. And that I, feels I, like an honest, genuine yes. moment, whereas like the yeah. whole phone call sequence feels engineered because that's what the movie's supposed to do, not like the movie's earned. I, it. I really do wish, and I'll see if I can find it if I still have the the script for Elizabeth Town because I would, I'd send it obviously, I'd send it to you guys because I would love you to read the scene because. Part of the problem is that it's turned into a montage. Like it's turned into a sequence as opposed to actually being um, this meaty thing of these two people really getting to know each other and fall in love with each other. Instead, you know, they're just like, well, Ryan Adams will convey it for us. (laughs) You're just like, okay. Right. Right. And I think that's the thing with the road trip at the end too, is I feel like if the, the, I, part of me was just like the, this road trip should be the movie. Yeah. That's what, if that, I, f- I feel like that's the part where Cameron Crowe really feels like he's, um, and it almost feels like all the stuff in Elizabethtown and with the stuff with dealing with the father's yeah. family and all of that almost feels like Cameron Crowe trying to pay respect to his own father. Because right. a lot of this mm-hmm. sort of was comes from the idea of he had not been to his father's gravesite since his his dad had died and. I think as a writer, he kind of just sort of imagined this sort of scenario with, you know, a, a guy who wished sort of had always been this very sort of like um, Harry Chapin idea of like, I was always sort of put, putting off getting to know my dad as an adult um, to, you know, next year and next year and next year. And now he doesn't have this chance and he wants to sort of get to know his dad's family uh, almost as a penance. And it feels like that's what Crow it wants to sort of give this portion of the movie its due. It's sort of like it's airing out. And it also might have been that the studio was like, this is what we want this movie to be, is this sort of culture clash dramedy and make it that. But there is, I think the movie miscalculates in giving so much real estate to that portion of the movie and then you have this thing at the end where you're just like, oh, no, this is the movie you wanted to make. Just I wish you would have just made it rather than, you know, well, it's sort of futzing around with this idea of like, should we cremate my father? Or should we not cremate my father? Definitely- it's just like, no, you're going to cremate your father. Just fucking do it. I, 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 I agree. <laughs> I, I think that it's a symptom of a, of a couple of things. The first is what you mentioned. Um, 
you know, Cameron Crowe's been pretty open about the fact that, you know, Almost Famous was the love letter to his mom and this was the love letter to his dad. Um, you know, I think that he definitely was grappling with his relationship with his father and how he didn't really know his dad and all that sort of stuff, which he definitely wanted to explore. But, I, it, you know, it, it's funny because, like, I think about uh, Say Anything, which is obviously his first film, and it's so clean it's so economic in its, it in, in knows yeah. what it is. It's really a, essentially a two-hander with the relationship with the dad, which takes a turn, an unexpected turn. I mean, it's, it's just, unfortunately, it feels like the, the deeper into his career he gets, the, the less sort of obviously constraints there are on his work. So he just kind of flails in all these different directions. And, and this film is obviously, perhaps the most egregious of the bunch because um, it's, 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 he's still got the power, like the real kind of, as you said, and we're obviously talking about like this had real Oscar potential on paper. And Oh yeah. You know, I mean, Vanilla Sky is a hundred million dollar right? movie. It made a hundred million dollars at the box office being right. what it is. Of course he still has the power for this, which is also why I was like, Okay, is this informed at all by like the critical yes. and like audience response of that movie, the whole like fiasco failure thing? Because I'm like, if, if, if Vanilla Sky informed it, he doesn't really seem to be aware that that movie was a hit and made money, <laughs> yeah. regardless of how it was perceived. I think that, I mean, I remember Vanilla Sky coming out. I remember the discourse around it. Obviously, there was not just the Cameron Crowe of it all, but there was the Penelope Cruz and Tom Cruise thing. Um, yeah, that made people ready to all, hate it. I think Vanilla Sky is a much more fascinating Tom Cruise document than it is a Cameron Crowe document. For I as agree, much as, you know, Crowe um, is such a fascinating filmmaker. But, like, I've always said that, like, the thing about Vanilla Sky that's most fascinating is it's a movie star document about a movie star at a very particular point in his life and career and like that's to me what's fascinating i agree this guy and i almost am very ready to let cameron crowe take a back seat <laughs> in that one whereas like in elizabethtown it's impossible to let anybody take a back seat to cameron crowe in this movie like it really is it's he's he's right up there on the screen and part of it is that like orlando bloom's not going to be a dynamic enough person to take that yeah. from him but also it's just like this is so very clearly like a cameron crowe story well, the, the, yeah i would no, I was, go just, ahead. I was just gonna say that you know the, the Vanilla Sky thing. I, I agree, Joe. Is interesting. You know, you've got Nicole Kidman's ascension is happening right as as Vanilla yeah, Sky that year. is 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 dropping. Um, so yep. there is this sort of the the Tom Cruise. They didn't want him single for too long. Like there's all these weird things that were going on surrounding that film. And on top of it all, the film is kind of strange in its own right. Um, and it's Cameron Crowe going to sort of odd places. So this film feels so reactionary to that where he's just like i'm not gonna put some giant megawatt star in this thing that's gonna that's gonna you know suck up all the attention uh i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna make this this kind of endearing genuine earnest love story um and and obviously it doesn't really work i, I the one other thing i wanted to well, there's lots of things i want to talk about one of the other things i want to talk about <laughs> is watching this yesterday i was also hit with uh the six feet under of it all um, oh, I love Six Feet Under. It's it's my favorite television show. Yeah. Um, and there's oh, definitely a little bit of that mixed in here. There's it's the only movie that Cameron Crowe actually really deals with death head on, where he make like this is a movie about death. It's about how we grieve. It's about how we deal with death. 
you know, uh, obviously it's about, you know, cremation versus all these things. Like it's got all this stuff going on and it's a gallows humor that he's so completely unadept at. Like he, mm-hmm. he yeah. does not know how to really deal with this stuff. Like the, the suicide stuff does not belong in this movie. It's so shocking, right? I feel like the imagery is so at odds with the tone yeah. of just like yeah, like he uh, attaches the knife to uh, like an exercise it's bike so, so that he can Elliot Smith yeah. himself, and oh. it's not funny. And, the first time we meet him, he's but, cons- uh, he's, cons- he's contemplating suicide in the first scene that we see. Drew is him in the helicopter, right? Looking out, the- and right. Thinking about trying to jump out of the helicopter it's and and, and again you know. there's this borderline magical yes, realism yes. too that doesn't yes. work that feels either crazy or just like a belly flop like where he's looking at his father in the casket and the body smiles <laughs> it's there's weird. also like when drew arrives to the town and everybody's pointing him in the right direction like they're in some creepy kentucky midsummer <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I that I I noticed this time that I don't think I had noticed it the last time. The other thing though is just that like the Alec Baldwin character is too big to not recur in the movie. Well, he, like it, it's that was that, part of what was cut though. They revisit well, the sure, shoes yeah. in the original cut at the end of the movie. Oh. These shoes that look like stingrays. Who could have do, imagined that it would have lost a billion dollars? I don't do understand this company though? that doesn't have market research. Don't even, um, yeah, that's, that, no, I could, I, that was the thing that really hit me this time around. I was like, let me get this straight. How did you lose a billion dollars on one shoe? Did you not market test did at you do all? Any, like, it's, it's, right. it's crazy. So like. But that's, I mean, I guess that's a buy-in. You either buy it or you don't. I don't, but it is what it is. Well, but it, it feels like it's Crow being fascinated by the idea of somebody like Phil Knight. Like, clearly, yes. like, Alec Baldwin's character is a very, very thin gloss on Phil Knight, the Nike yeah. guy. And I think it's the same way that, like, in Jerry Maguire, he's very, very fascinated by a character like Lee Steinberg, who is this, like, superstar sports agent, right? Thank God Cameron Crowe never got his hands on Steve Jobs. Kind of, yeah. Like, that kind of made me think that way, too, of just, like, he's clearly very, very fascinated by these sort of iconoclast um, businessmen who sort of, who, you know, and in this case, it's... I did feel like there was some good comedy in when Baldwin sort of like walking him through this sort of dreamscape of his corporation where he's walking past and he's just like, my, you know, my ecological uh, (laughs) green spaces project is going to have to go. And it's just like the sort of like the darkness of that humor I did kind of appreciate, but there's nowhere for it to go. Like it doesn't really like it's on its own little weird island somewhere. That's why I kind of wish that they hadn't cut out the full circle of that storyline. Cause the originally, I guess in the original cut of it, the shoes actually become a hit. Um, and weirdly because they whistle when you walk, don't get me started. Oh God. That's what we need. Stingray shoes that whistle guys. <laughs> They're the new light up shoes. So I'm not suggesting that that's a good ending, but to your point, Joe, it's so seismic up top and it, you've got a, a you know, relatively big movie star in Alec Baldwin that for it to just yeah. kind of go nowhere is a little bit weird. Well, you're just you you end up, or at least I was, throughout the movie, 
just being like, yeah, but what's going on with the job? Like, I thought we were supposed to really care about that. And ultimately, that's like kind of a MacGuffin of the movie. And like, that's fine. I don't really need to know the ins and outs of this fake Nike company. But like, they make it so they give you so much detail at the beginning. And I'm just like, am I holding this stuff in my head for nothing? Like, what is like, why am I I doing that? And I was I was holding it all in my head for nothing. And at least like, that's very not aware of its own mess it's just like constantly running around shitting on the floor basically but if if we just had a i for the most part in this movie i feel like if it was self-aware mess that like cameron crow was intentionally having this like i don't know cornucopia of like all of these montages and like was just trying to like intentionally be like messy yeah basically it would mostly work Except for the shoe stuff, because yeah, I eh, yeah, I, it's just from. I keep saying that everyone's an alien, but it's just from another planet of rationality. That can I, I can I jump on that for a quick second? Because I think that you're. I agree with you, and I don't know if you guys read this <laughs> this observation that Roger Ebert had on the film. Do you guys have you? Roger Ebert was like, uh, with the TIFF reception, Roger Ebert was one of the few kind people to this movie. He gave it three stars, even when it was released, like in the the second version of it, which he did say the new version, he liked it better because it was shorter. Um, But he had, so I'm going to read this very quick thing where on a second viewing of the film, Roger Ebert made the observation that it's really the hidden story of an angel who has fallen from grace. Claire, the angel is met in the heavens. Uh, an empty plane and has decided to guide Drew through his depression, suicidal thoughts and redeem himself from failure. Uh, The corporations are found to be illusions. Character names and corporations are found to be illusions of hell, the Bible, sin and the devil. Drew has to redeem and cleanse himself from working with the devil. Claire also needs to make the choice to remain on earth at the end. And he talks about how it's got like, it's a wonderful life dogma and what have you. Uh, Okay. So that, is that though? Was that Ebert That's or was so that him? I, him? I I always I, thought that was Ebert printing like a letter from like somebody who wrote into him about that theory. I, I mean, was that if that's, that's he, Ebert's that's actual theory? That's like not actual. Cameron Crowe's intention at, at all. all. But the reason I'm bringing it up is, had he made that movie, I might have been more on board to some degree. Like. Well, when you if you're like fully right. like breaking the bonds of of rationality, right. like yeah, sure, right. yes, yeah. But because Claire isn't some like rescuing angel, she is a uh, pro- possibly unwell person who decides to fall in love with this guy, makes the conscious choice to do it, and latches onto him. And it it some of it, I was like. Uh, eye rolling really hard not trying to not be the person to be who's just like offended by this but it's just like it's incredibly convenient that she loves him so much and he is not interested in her um well and the clearly this is where sort of the the manic pixie dream girl sort of thing comes into play which was not actually coined in the initial reception Correct. to the movie, but this was like several years later, Nathan Rabin had yes. written about um, this for a series that he was doing on the AV club about essentially flop movies and talking about this trend of female characters who are written as essentially a conduit to help the male character appreciate life. And they are sort of fully there to 
be you know to fall in love with but also to not really have in our lives of their own he also brings up natalie portman's character in garden state which is i think also a really good example of that although again that is a movie and i've never rewatched it because i'm so afraid to but i really really liked garden state at the time and i really loved natalie portman in that movie and yet i'm reading this thing from nathan rabin and i'm just like yeah that all fits like i can't like i can't you know I can't deny it. The thing about this movie, because this comes out after Garden State, it feels like very much in the vein. But like, even if we're not looking too kindly on Garden State, it's kind of hard to argue that Garden State doesn't do so much of what Elizabethtown is trying to do so much better, or at least more effectively, you know, and partly that's because Garden State is trying to do one or two things. Elizabethtown is trying to do one or two hundred things. (laughs) Well, so it's interesting because I remember I saw Garden State in 2004 when it came out and I quite liked it. It spoke to me as a 24 year old. Um, I I was like, yeah, sure. This this movie speaks to me. Um, I've watched it since and and it doesn't speak to me as much as it did. Uh, It's it's definitely got its flaws (laughs) for sure. Um, And and it is it's its own, you know, brand of of not working. Right, but it has a vision, and it's got a very specific sort of uh, tone and way of telling its story. This movie yeah. uh, is just unfortunately caught in the wake of it. When it comes to the manic pixie dream girl thing, which I would argue, I imagine Nathan Raven maybe wish he didn't write at this point. Um, just in terms of coining yeah. a term, yeah, I so bet it's, it's it's been so overused. Yeah. I feel like in the and years also just. Since, yeah. I, I, my big thing is I don't necessarily have a problem with the trope so much if it's executed well. And that's kind of how I feel about tropes across the board, right? Which is sure. if, if it's done well, who gives a shit? If it's done poorly, then yeah, we have issues. And and admittedly, Natalie Portman and, and, and uh, Kirsten Dunn's characters in both these films, uh, unfortunately, are just not as three-dimensional as we would like them to be. Um well, I think that's the thing. And we talked about it when we mentioned mm-hmm. Kate Winslet in the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where it's like that's that trope, but but gifted with a writer who actually wants to flesh out that character. And I think that's sort of the most damning thing about the manic pixie dream girl isn't necessarily the manicness or the pixiness. Yeah. It's the it's the dream thing. It's just like she's not real. Mm-hmm. She doesn't exist. She doesn't have as much agency or, you know, actual character than the male character. And like that's to me the problem. But I also feel like that is a term that has been applied in the years since to like any female character that in any way bothers the male person sort of writing about the movie. And it's just sort of just like, okay, all right. Like we don't need to tar everybody with this. Well, I I do. I think the other part of it too, that that plays into this and, and I'm guilty of this too, to some degree, I guess as a writer and as just a, a white male straight person uh, is that wouldn't it be great if I found a beautiful girl who wants to make me a mixtape? Sure. (laughs) Um, And I mean... Oh, you know what? She doesn't have... She may not have inner life, but you know what Claire has? She has a fuck ton of time on her hands. She She really does. While she is mid-flight, she is building this giant, to me, creepy, um, like, notebook for him with photos of her and, like... You know, all of the super cool songs that she is literally guiding him and telling him what to do. 
this whole trip. I find it creepy. Um, but like, but it's creepy, Chris, in the same way that like any kind of grand romantic gesture in a movie can be creepy if you think about it from the perspective of somebody who's like not into it like and and i think it's <laughs> but he's not into it the dude is not that into her at first she's annoying at first him. but like ultimately he ultimately the you know this is a movie character who like he gets swept up in all of this and like ultimately by the end like clearly he is going on this road trip because he wants to sort of follow the path to this girl so like by that point I'm like, you're either, you know, you're in, you're in or you're out. And I think he's I in. I just feel like she's trying him. to incept him <laughs> into liking her. Um, and it's, it's a little icky to me, which is like, no, we, I want to talk about Kirsten yes. Dunst a little yes. bit because like, it's no fault of hers. She's like fully throwing herself into this character. And maybe that's partly why it's like every outlandish thing that Claire does is so pronounced because like uh dunst seems like kind of uninhibited or unthrown and like really going for this character who behaves in this way and who's like you know the, the like charm of it um in a way that like i think really speaks to her as like a fearless performer that like this could have been one of the ones to get her some Oscar respect if it worked. And of course it doesn't. Um, I think that I, first of all, I'm a big Kirsten Dunst fan. I, I do really love her work. I think she's a fantastic actor. Um, she's has a, has, she's one of our MVPs in 1999. She's got you know three phenomenal films in 1999. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I absolutely can't wait to see what it's like to see her in a Jane Campion right? movie. Right. Yes. So I, I love her. Um, and, and I would, she doesn't bother me as much as she bothers you in this film. And part of it might be because, uh, as I mentioned, I, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a, a white straight guy in my forties. So I, I think to some degree, um, this, you know, this performance is, is built to be, uh, endearing to a person like myself. But I think that, um, there is a world where this works, as you mentioned, Chris, and it's and it becomes an iconic role, and it becomes an iconic movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Cameron Crowe has obviously done this a couple times over. Uh, I'm sure Kirsten Dunst looked at this and said, "Is this my Penny Lane? Like, is this right. is, is it possible that, sure. that, that this is going to be that for me?" And I would. No, I'm with you on that too because I think her character is a lot where this like kind of screwbally. Yeah texture that's not coming through in the movie but is being attempted i think there is a lot of that and if that maybe worked or registered more you know the character would probably make a lot more sense part of me wonders if if he wrote this role subliminally with kate hudson in mind and then just never thought to cast her in it because like so much (laughs) of this character feels like oh this is like a kate hudson character like this very much feels like what she like what one of her characters would do in a way that it doesn't feel like a Kirsten Dunst character based on everything else she had sort was of she done. She offered her the role. No, I don't. Because we talked about she's the not. Who she's not connected to this story, this production true. story so, at all. So like was, I've I've never seen her Jessica name. Jessica Biel was up for it, and then ultimately gets the role right. of Ellen. Um, and I guess Scarlett Johansson also uh, auditioned. Also, am I wrong that I heard that Evan Rachel Wood at some point yes, was in the mix for yeah. it? 
Yeah. yeah. And was too yeah. young. Yeah. So I, it, it's... Kate Hudson would have made perfect sense. I guess. So. Yes. I, you know, part of it is... I, I was watching this yesterday, and I was so at odds with myself because there's so many moments in this <laughs> film where I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, really? But then there's also a part of me that kind of likes it. I don't know how to explain when she does the... <laughs> When she does the fake camera thing, it, and and I'm just like, I don't know why I find this sort of endearing. And you find it I charming. I find it yeah. sort of charming, even though my brain it's tells me. It's certainly an indelible image from the movie. And like when I think of Cameron Crowe, I don't really think of like his imagery. Right. Like I can't really conjure up images from a lot of his movies, but I do think of that shot. It felt like it was trying to be the Penny Lane dancing in the middle of an empty gymnasium kind of a thing. That kind of a sort of wistful... I do like that shot. I, that's that, when you mentioned that like you can't think of Cameron Crowe in images, that's the first thing that popped into my mind because like I think that's that's one of them I, I for really, him. And yeah, I, I really think she has this... There is, there is something... First of all, there's something just very charming and endearing about Kristen Dunst to begin with. So there is that, right? Like, she is a movie star. So, like, she kind of can do anything, and mm-hmm. she, it's watchable kind of no matter what she does. Um, now, yes. there's obviously a lot of moments in this film that, that are that are silly, but there's also a lot of silent moments where, where she's really weaponized as a great actor. I think about the scene in the airplane mm-hmm. when she puts two and two together that his father is dead, that she does essentially silently i think about the scene later in the film when drew's telling her about all those professional problems after they've had sex and just the look on her face where she's just so clearly crushed by the fact that he doesn't he's talking about himself and not her like right she does a lot of really there's there's a lot of silent moments um that are really lovely i think it's also worth saying too that ever since i would argue ever since probably jerry Maguire. Every female lead in a Cameron Crowe film is him trying to build Audrey Hepburn. Oh, that's um, interesting. It's, you actually yeah, get a shot of Audrey Hepburn sounds, in this yes, movie. As, as you do in <laughs> Vanilla Sky with, with yeah. Penelope Cruz. Uh, he, he's just really trying to build his own <laughs> Audrey Hepburn, yeah. um, which is an impossibility because she was obviously luminescent and, and this sort of next right one thing. of a kind um yeah so it, it is interesting like as you said as you just alluded to there's the roman holiday sequence where we're literally cross-cutting between roman holiday right and her waking up in the morning there's just a right. lot of stuff baked into this role um that is sort of an impossible thing for her to pull off Mm-hmm. which is unfortunate and like i don't think i i don't think it uh, just like orlando bloom for a very different reason none of it is his fault right. uh i don't think like she's really to blame for anything to do with this character i do yes. kind of wonder like kirsten dunce always has like this edge of darkness that always like makes her performances all that more mm-hmm. interesting or like sadness too and like there's not it like kind of does a little bit of it but like it doesn't 
I don't know if the movie is really all that interested in her and her inner life enough to really like. See, this is why you think she's a mental patient. Do her thing in this movie. This is why you think she's a mental patient, though, because she has that Kirsten Dunst thing of just like that little bit of darkness on the edge that you're just like, what's really going on? What's actually happening? No, I think she's a mental patient because like she immediately latches on to this man and like won't let him go. Listen, she's she is she's working an empty airplane there. Like she's got to latch on to somebody. I don't know. I, I I'm sitting in the middle here. Here's my my big bump that I noticed this time, and and part of it was that I read that originally the Ben character was her brother, not her. Oh, lover. and that it was going to be a reveal at the end that like that whatever. Um, they should have done that. Like this idea that there was this guy that's treating her poorly in the periphery um, that we never yeah. meet. That to, to to both of your points only hurts Claire's character. It only makes Claire feel that much more sort of wounded and 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 clingy and needy and, and all these weird things. It also muddies yeah. their romance because you're like, wait, is she cheating? Like, w- what's going on here? So uh, it's, it's right. It, all of it does a disservice to Claire's character. Um, yeah, but I also and it just creates this scenario where Drew can eventually just solve her merely by loving her back. Isn't that how it works, Chris? I think... (laughs) (laughs) I also feel like if you have a stronger lead actor in that role, he can sell that connection better than Bloom, who just, you know, God bless him, just is not able to make those sort of silent moments or those sort of, like, even, like, all of the bantering moments between them, like, he's really not pulling his weight. And I think that's a problem with all of that. I did want to sort of like take before we sort of run out of time, I did want to take a detour into the Holly yes, character. Yes, who yes. Sort of, we approached this a little bit. My big note that I wrote down when I was watching this was just like exactly how much time has passed between her husband dying and her showing up in Elizabethtown. Because yeah. like, she how has many, not slept. How many tap classes has she taken? How many, like, where, how, what time frame has it happened? Like, he, he was gone, like, a week, right? By the time she shows yeah, up. Like, and it's... she's, like, taking stand-up classes, and she's got a solid five minutes already. I mean, this is the thing, it's just like. In it's a, it's a temporal <laughs> thing. <laughs> her, that's her. That's the vanilla sky of it. He <laughs> yes. enters an alternate <laughs> reality. Yes, yes. yes. But like I just I and it's again, an anomaly like lost. <laughs> it's a logistical nitpick, but it sort of also goes to yeah. the idea that like her story is just like fundamentally doesn't make a ton of sense on a character level, and we're asked to then make a big leap when it gets to that last scene and the tap dancing scene, and it's supposed it should be in its like best version. This like because it's not like it's a great. It's not like Susan Sarandon's out there just like hoofing it, right? Like it's just like it's very sort of quiet. Yeah. She's doing her best, but like, but in the ideal version of that, we're so invested in her and we're so sort of moved by her making this, you know, sort of leap into trying something new that we should be moved. But we don't know enough about her. We don't spend enough time with her. And none of it feels like it's this hard earned sort of moment for her. So it just plays as really bizarre. And then you watch the reaction of like this room full of people who were supposed to think have been hostile to this woman for the last like 20 years. And they like just fully like 
fall into like loving her or and cheering for her and laughing with her jokes and it's just like i i just don't believe it i don't believe any of it and i I need to i'm with you but like of all of the many 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 contrivances that you're just supposed to go with in this movie it's the one that works maybe the most interesting Interesting. even though it is fully ridiculous for all of the reasons that you've said but i do think that that's partly because of the performance i think that she's probably the best performance in the movie i mean i do love her as an actress but that that character just really doesn't work for me at all and it 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 should and that's the other thing it's just like you know susan sarandon tap dancing to moon river for her dead husband like conceptually should really work for me it's it's right crazy total pivot from a boner joke to a I'm, I'm just happy to see uh, Susan monologue. <laughs> I, I love Susan Sarandon. I, I don't have an issue with her as an actor. Um, although I, I, so Jane Fonda was originally cast in the role and then for scheduling purposes right. um, was, wasn't in it. Um, I don't know that Jane Fonda would have been better or worse. I, I might have been more quote unquote interested in Jane Fonda because up until this point, she just hadn't acted very much. So I, I right think, was this the same year that she comes back with Monster in Law two thousand five? Yeah, um, so she a movie that like is dumb, but I will kind of ride for in, in <laughs> absolutely. I do. I will. I'm sorry. Right. I just will. but I, I the one two punch of Monster in Law and Elizabeth Town would have been a hell of a two thousand and five for Jane Fonda. It really would have been. It really, really um, would have been. But yeah. I, I, I just I think that I wonder if. The, the 18 minutes that we've talked about, it almost feels like the Nixon tapes, but the 18 minutes that's been cut from this film uh, <laughs> does feel like, uh, I think, uh, part of it was the Holly stuff. I think some of that was cut. Mm-hmm. I think part of it was the Paul uh, Schneider stuff. I'm sure part of, part of it was there, too. And I think that because they felt like, or maybe Cameron Crowe felt like, well, I've given her her Oscar moment in this amazing thing at the end. So, like, it doesn't really matter yeah. if you just pop into her a little bit earlier but like her getting stuck in the hood of the car is so broad and weird like it's very broad yeah the fact that like she does the full cartoonish like sticks her legs out and she's flailing i was like that's really (laughs) that's a choice yeah it at least feels like the movie is owning its craziness a little bit like i i'm fine with that kind of like if it's if it's going to be like actively messy, then it should feel like it's intentionally trying to be that way. I I, I agree with that. This so is I'm fine this with is it. <laughs> I'm I fine think, with and it. I agree with you, Chris. That I, there's a commitment to that stuff. Where um, and I, I certainly would say that he's committed to the to the Drew and Claire relationship, but he it's also sort of like. And then you've got like the the Cindy and and uh, Chuck and Cindy wedding stuff, which I'm just like I don't know why this is in the movie, um, right? Just, all of that just stuff, all sorts yeah. Of stuff there that just feels yeah. like just like there's a lot of business. Bottle the acid, like just focus on if this was just a, a love story <laughs> about Drew yeah. and Claire, I, I just think a we would care because they just have more screen time, you know. Yeah, and and, and I just ultimately feel like. He just gets too kind of it's there's just too many shiny things that he's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this was there? And what if it, what about this? And what about this? And all of it just feels like it's doing a disservice to everything. I feel that way about casting Paula Dean. <laughs> sure. I know it's such a small sure. thing. I'm like, but oh like, my God. It, but it, and it's another huge time capsule, too, because I like Food Network has always been sort of a comfort watch for me in general. But that particular time period was very much like personality forward on Food Network, where it was like. 
you would you could watch for like an entire afternoon and it would just be like Rachel Ray, Paula Dean, Giada De Laurentiis, <laughs> Alton Brown. And it was just like that's their that's their sort of stars at that moment. So it was like it was a weird like subculture thing of just like we're gonna give you shorthand as to what this character is by casting Paula Dean and like and it works, but I wonder like if you are not familiar with this sort of food network subculture, I wonder if it, you know, it's not like she, like, they're she not asking bad. her to she act. She's a bad actor. They're not I, asking I, a whole I ton of her. So like, forgot, yeah. I fundamentally forgot, or I never maybe even connected that Paula Dean is in this movie. So when she showed up, I screamed at my TV. <laughs> I was like, what? She's How like a could role. This get more curse. It wasn't have, even like a. It wasn't you know, even like a, a bit part. She's got like. She's got probably yeah. like ten lines. She's well, and it's her. Scenes. It's her and Cameron Crowe's real life mother yes, playing like yes. the two sort of aunts in the family yeah. who seem to be kind of running the show. Yeah, so it's. Bizarre. But again, and she's the one who sort of like you kind of expect that like she's going to be the representative of the family who's going to like have a scene with Sarandon where they sort of like work out this familial also. That whole goddamn phone call where Sarandon, like, is making a huge goddamn deal about Bruce McGill's character and how he's, like, shady and whatever, and it comes to absolutely nothing, probably because it was cut out, but, like, still, then cut that part out, too, because, like, ultimately, don't set, like, again, it's another thing for me to have to, like, keep in my mind of just, like, well, we now need to pay off Holly and, you know, Bruce McGill, and it's like, well, no, apparently we really don't. I, I'll just I I, I just have uh, two other quick things that I that I want to say. Um, yeah. The first is um, I really do feel like this whole film is really encapsulated in Susan Sarandon telling a boner joke, yes. quickly pivoting to a sad tap dance routine, and yeah. then a giant bird catching on fire during Freebird. During like, Freebird, it's just you're you're it's... watching. Like it's it's hard not to look at all of this and say like this is madness. Like this is. is complete madness and it does sort of to pivot back to what we were saying earlier where you're just like if you were to lay out all the things that happened in jerry mcguire there's a lot of crazy shit that happens in that movie right but like he keeps it all he keeps all of those plates spinning here these plates are falling right left and center and yes. it's and it is it broken glass all over broken the glass everywhere you can't but at the same time i just want to highlight a moment that i do really love which is before all of the shit hits the fan, there's this moment where uh, Drew and Claire kiss for the first time. Yeah. And I really do love the moment when you get a shot of her and her eyes open a little bit and you can see that she smiles. And it's kind of this moment where, and I know it might add to the, the, the psychosis that you feel about Claire, Chris, but I do <laughs> think that it's a really lovely Cameron Chrome moment. Like those are the moments that yeah. I love about him. And when he's able to weaponize those, it really is a lovely thing that no one else is doing. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think ultimately this is, it's too crazy for me in Elizabethtown, but I do like, there are definitely (laughs) those moments where I feel like, yeah, this is, and you can, again, I just feel like you can feel it in the, the sort of the verve of the movie. Like this is the movie that, that Crow really wants to be making. And ultimately the whole of it is not, I can't imagine this thing. When he saw the finished product, he was like, yes, this is exactly what I want. And, like, and I can't I, imagine it. I, I totally agree. I'll, I'll just say the one last thing that I wanted to say about the, the, the road trip journey at the end of the film. And yeah. you mentioned it earlier, Chris, with the Elton John song and, and Orlando crying behind the, the wheel of the car. Like, 
there's something there. The idea of, of yes, that, I think that so wide too. shot yeah. of him dancing with his hand up in the air to I like to that Tom scene. Petty. I like that moment. I like, do. That's, I forget which of you mentioned it that it's like the movie should be the road trip where yes. it's like you yeah. have flashbacks there because then it feels like rather than rushing that whole mm-hmm. significant thing that feels like this is what the movie wants to be you know, you can call back to other things and you can actually have like some major impact in that moment to, you know, hopefully you're also I would I cutting the parts out of it that don't work. I fully um, agree. And I would I would say too to that point, you know, uh Camera Crow is never had always tells a straight line. I mean, outside of Vanilla Sky, his movies are a very straight line, narratively speaking. And mm-hmm. I think had this film literally been the road trip and a fractured narrative of jumping around in the timeline and learning all of these things. First of all, it would have been more engaging because you wouldn't, you wouldn't know where all the pieces fell. Um, And, and it also just would have really highlighted to what I think we're all saying, which is that that road trip is Drew's arc, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. him finally turning into the person that he's going to be, if you will. So make that the movie, but or you need something to like focus yeah. all of these threads totally. into yeah. like a very clear, if not structure, but like format to be providing us information yes. where you can figure out what is important <laughs> and what is not. Yeah. Yeah. Storytelling, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to. <laughs> the fundamentals telling a story. Yeah. Um, we haven't really talked a whole ton about like, uh, oscar stuff and like we've we've made it through most of this so we don't really need to because there's not a ton uh to it i think it gets a few critics choice nominations one of which is for nancy wilson's uh, score which is a lot of it mostly just sort of makes me think of the almost famous score that i think is like one of the greatest you know like undersung uh, music scores in in my lifetime at least um but it's obviously very lovely and she does you know very very good work um until they just right I know, I know. That was a that was a yeah. bummer uh, yeah. to deal with. A couple of my notes that I wrote down were were about uh, the music. One of which is, and I get the like Audrey Hepburn connection to Moon River, and that's I think probably why she's tap dancing mm-hmm. to Moon River. But like two years before this, like the Mike Nichols Angels in America used Moon River to much 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 better effect, and I was just like, well, like yeah. not enough time has passed. Like the yeah. the part where Pryor and Lewis are sort of slow dancing to Moon River in in a dream sequence, and there I was just like, okay, well that like. Now you can't. We've we've taken Moon River off of the board for the next I, several I years. Yep. Um, the other one, and maybe Chris, you you're my Fleetwood Mac guy, so maybe uh, you would. Yeah, is maybe that we, the is that the version of Big Love from the dance that they use on the soundtrack to this movie? Oh, I completely forget. Because um, <laughs> it's Lindsey Buckingham doing that? Big Love, and I feel like it just I was, and I couldn't quite put my finger on whether it was because of just like this sounds so familiar to me. And the version of that song that I know is the one from the dance, and obviously that's a lie. I mean, that album. would make sense because like Cameron Crowe is not just going to give you the like whatever; he's going to give you the special acoustic whatever. Yeah, that was sure. like a bonus on this limited, you know. But it also made me feel like if you're going to give me Lindsay Buckingham in Act One, you need to give me Stevie Nicks in Act Three. And I, was like, I wanted it. I wanted it. And I didn't get it. That's great. Yeah. Um, was there anything else you guys wanted to bring up before we uh, wrap up and move into the IMDb game? One, because I feel like I've dogged so hard on this movie and I have to at least, you know, pay tribute to the part of me that used to defend uh, loving this movie. One of the crazy things that it's like, why is this here that I actually do think brings like a texture to the movie that works and you guys are probably going to disagree is like 
all of this that's going on during this funeral is opposite a wedding. There's this wedding that's happening the whole time in the background where it's like we meet. Claire just like ends up at the bachelorette. They party. love her. They're they're they all big fans. The groom who's drunk and sobbing in the hallway and gets on the phone with Claire. Like I like that is an element that worked to me in terms of like the displacement of what it's like to, you know, go through a grieving process. And it's like how there can be these things that are totally normal that are just like you're confronted with that feel crazy. I will say what I liked about that, that whole stuff the best, because I do feel like ultimately it's, it's one more thing that they pinned to this, you know, pin the tail on the donkey of a movie that like probably (laughs) was ultimately the whole thing seems a little messy, but it made me feel like, oh, other people see some this spark in Claire. And it's not just that she exists to, you know, make Drew's life better or to be this kind of like, this is where that sort of like the angel thesis. I was like, well, it falls apart because like she's also, you know, these uh, these other women uh, spend this whole sort of afternoon with her and she's part of the bachelorette party and they love her. And it's just like, oh, clearly this girl has she's one of those people who has a spark that sort of like draw people to her. And it's just like, okay, that to me really helps at least sell her as a person more than, you know, I agree with that. I I agree that it, that it showed that I'll say this though, in terms of, I, I, I agree with you, Chris. And, and at first I was like, I do like that there's this juxtaposition of, of the wedding and the funeral, but then the fucking groom gets drunk and says like life next to death, next to life. And you're like, Cameron, we get it. We're watching the movie too. We understand. I guess it's just one of the moments where like the comedic vibe that he's going for finally works for me. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, the, the 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 biggest thing that hit me about this yesterday was there's a good movie here. Like yeah. if if someone was able to, I don't know, give him notes. If 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 someone, <laughs> right. was, you know what I mean? If if with a little bit of distance, a little bit of perspective, right. I think you know there's a good movie to be made out of this, which is part of why I think I still have an affinity for it because I'm like, there's a movie somewhere in this that I kind of think I could have loved. Well, and I think in the in the annals of Cameron Crowe's movies. I think the for me the fail big movie is Vanilla Sky, but like there are there is a way to look at Elizabeth Town as a fail big movie that yes. that is almost more yep. it's more his than it is, you know, Vanilla Sky. And that to me at mm-hmm. least makes it a fascinating document in that and way. And he's still licking his wounds from this, I would say, more than from Vanilla Sky. I think Absolutely. so too. I think so. And that makes sense. And it makes a lot of sense. And I'm always still going to root for Cameron Crowe. I think ultimately for a filmmaker who is, you know, showed himself to be, you know, very flawed in the last decade, I still find him quite endearing in, in that sort of, in that way that I can never quite be, um, uh, okay boomer about things where I'm just like, (laughs) you know, I find it, I do find a lot of that aspect of him really enduring. And again, I mean, he made almost famous, which is one of, my very, yeah. very, very favorite movies of all time. Yeah. So ultimately, like he gets, he gets That's a lifetime pass. pass to try and like get back to that. As far as I'm concerned, I feel so. the exact same way about Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah, oh, boy. you know, I get I, it. I got off that train uh, at at some point, <laughs> but I, but I, uh, I, my, I understand the 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 attachment to that too, though for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
All right. My last uh, note on Elizabeth Town mm-hmm. is the whistling stingray shoe is named Spasmodica. <laughs> is Spasmodica the heterosexual chromatica? <laughs> I can't answer these questions. <laughs> yeah, there's a boat uh, yeah. going around somewhere on a river in uh, in Kentucky called the Spasmodica. That uh, like who would think that who wants to buy a shoe called the Spasmodica? Yeah, it very it much reminded like... me, it was that Simpsons episode where they let Homer design a car, right? Where it's just like, there's a bubble top and there's wings and there's whatever. And it's just like, but yeah. again, like, yeah. part of me, and I, and I know that like, you know, business magazines cover, you know, business in a way that like the regular people aren't going to ever like care about anyway. Sure. But this idea that like Nike could make a shoe that was so bad that it would be like front page news everywhere that you would know the name of the designer. And it's like, no, we'd still basically be blaming Phil Knight for it. Like ultimately, like yeah. Alec Baldwin's character is the one who like is going to go down for it. And like clearly Drew's going to be fired, but it's going to be fired because like shit rolls downhill kind of, but like, he's not going to be the one on the cover of Forbes. Like it's absolutely, absolutely going to be Alec Baldwin. Unfortunately, my broken brain told me, you know what? The Spasmodica launch day would be a fun day on Twitter. My brain is broken. <laughs> it would have been though. It would have been. Oh yeah. Sneaker Twitter would have really like gone crazy that yeah. day. Uh, All right. And then you'd have some asshole being like, actually, the spasmodica is a really important. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, why don't you uh, remind our listeners how the IMDb game works? Hey, guys, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. Mm. If any of those titles are television, voiceover performances, or non-acting credits, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, uh, (laughs) needle drops, and... um, uh, Relatives. Collage scrapbooks. Um, <laughs> yes. All right. Pulled from Tumblr. All right. So, Phil, as our guest, we are going to give you first dibs as to uh, who you want to challenge with your pick for the IMDb game and whether you would like to go first or uh, last. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, well, I will I will challenge you, Joe. Um, and, uh, I mean, fuck it. I'll go first. Sure. Why not? Okay. All right. So who do you have for me? Um, Tilda Swinton. Oh, all right. I'm into this. Famous Vanilla Sky Coast. Vanilla Sky star Tilda Swinton. I love that. All right. So I feel like her Oscar win will probably be on there. So Michael Clayton is my first guess. Nope. Damn it. All right. One strike. Oh boy. (laughs) <laughs> all right now i've got to start to like the marvel thing kicks in and like how many of her because she's in two marvel movies we used to avoid uh marvel people and harry oh, potter people i'm sorry i didn't know that but like the oh, algorithm right. has changed it doesn't show up as much as it yes used to. That, but i am like, gonna we... guess dr strange i feel like that's probably one of them <laughs> nope. no <laughs> all right all right. Well, that's two strikes. So now you got to give me the years for all the ones that I have not gotten, which is all. Okay. Um, so two of them are from 2013. Okay. Um, and then one is from 2011 and one's from 2018. All right. So that sort of kind of hopscotches around the Wes Andersons that I was going to try and guess. I, I will say this is not the 
These might not be the four films that I would think she's most known for. This is well. This is the this is the great wonder. I would have guessed Grand Budapest Hotel because it shows up for everybody. Yes, that's the other thing. Um, Or even Moonrise Kingdom, and not there either. Okay, so is the 2018 Suspiria? Yes. Okay. What are the other years again? Uh, 2013 and 2011. 2013. There are two 2013s and a 2011. 2011 is going to be. We need to talk about Kevin. Correct. All right, 2013s. Um, what the hell is going on in 2013? That she. I will jump in here and say I think festival years might be throwing this off for you based off of U.S. releases. So, oh, right, okay. Lock yourself into 2013 U.S. Early releases. 2014. Yeah, yeah. Early 2014. But Grand Budapest. One of these. I don't think the other one did a festival. Grand also, Budapest was not a this. festival premiere. Yeah. Um, both very good movies, both made by auteur filmmakers. Okay. All right. Um, it's too early for the Luca Guadagnino movie, even though uh, the other, obviously, Luca Guadagnino movie besides Suspiria. Um, bigger splash. Um, Amazing movie. Great movie. What the hell is she doing in 2013? Oh, is one of them I Am Love? No. That's yeah. earlier. Uh, I believe she has a Critics' yes. Choice nomination. Yes, for I believe. I believe so. Wait, really? Oh, <laughs> yes. But it's it's not a bad call. Not a bad call. <laughs> is it Snowpiercer? That is one of them. Yeah. Shit. Snowpiercer, wow. baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um. All right. So this. So that was the one that like was 2013, but actually made it into U.S. theaters yeah. in 2014. Okay. Uh, no, the other one I was thinking. Oh, oh so right, it's Snowpiercer. Right. I'm not sure. It could be true of Snowpiercer, but I don't remember what that movie's festival run would have been if it had one. I feel like Snowpiercer came out in the states like a good while after it played a festival. Yeah, the rest of the world, at least. Yes. Okay. So I have a hint for you. Okay, I'll take it uh, for this last one. Um. She has played this role twice. <laughs> she has. Played... I don't know if that helps you or hurts you, but I'll just say that the role she plays in this film, she has played again on a television show. Oh, on a television show. A television I don't show. I even knew this. Oh, oh that makes sense, though. That's great. I need yeah. to watch this show. Oh, God. It's, it's a television show that uh, that we were talking about recently, Joe. We're texting about. Oh, okay. Um, um, uh, what We Do in the Shadows. And the right? movie? And the movie is... Um, um, uh, it's the vampire. It's 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 uh, only lovers left alive. There you go. That part when she shows up in fucking what we do in the shadows as her only lovers left alive <laughs> yeah. character, I freaking screamed. It was it's amazing. The it's I a need to so- get on oh my god, show. Chris. It's so funny. Um, I forgot I know, I about that. Them. I forgot yeah. about that. I love only lovers left alive too. I'm like yeah. kind of love that. That's that a movie. Rolls. Great fucking movie. Yeah. It really, really is. Um, yeah. All right, that's an excellent one. Uh, Phil, very, very good. Really challenging in ways that like you wouldn't expect for for Tilda Swinton. All right, yeah. excellent. All right, Chris, I am going to give to you. So I yes. went with. We talked about how Almost Famous is my favorite favorite Cameron Crowe movie. One of 
my favorite performances in a Cameron Crowe movie beyond like obviously there's so many and almost famous but a like a million people in that movie I ride for all of them excellent I ride for Feruza Balk in Almost Famous yes. so hard because yes. she's so fantastic I love her so much um, as Sapphire in that film and um, has some of one of my favorite my friend John and I always talk about this together the part where it's her and Billy Crudup as Russell Hammond towards the end where like things are dying down and the tour is coming to an end and she's talking about the new girls the new Yes. Uh, the new band-aids. Can you believe these new girls? None of them use birth control, and they eat all the steak. Such a great line. <laughs> um, so, Chris, you are now going to guess the known for for Feruza Balk. Okay. Um, the Craft. Indeed, The Craft. Almost Famous. Yes, Almost Famous. The Water Boy. No, that, that's a very good guess. Mm, wow. But it's not The Water Boy. American History X. Yes. The other 1998 movie that she did that year. Fantastic. All right, so you've got three correct um, and only one wrong answer. What? Uh, the Rebecca Miller movie, Personal Velocity. No, but that's also a really good guess. All right, so that's two strikes. So your missing film, and I think this will probably give it to you, uh, is from 1985. Oh. Eighty-five. So she. Oh, um. Uh. Uh. Bah, bah, bah. Return to Oz. Return to Traumatizing. Oz. Traumatizing. Thank you. That movie the freaked me out. Yeah. Terrifying. It was so dark. Yeah. Although I should I should watch it again. Um. But yeah. Who directed that? Oh, that I love Feruza Balk. I do great. too. She's, She's super fantastic. Um. Directed by Walter Murch. All right. Okay. So I am giving to uh, Phil. Mm. Usually I go through um, less uh, chaotic routes to find a person. I figured since we were doing Elizabeth Town, it's a town full of Elizabeths. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I researched a bunch of different Elizabeth options. And uh, for you, I have come up with Elizabeth Berkeley. Oh, oh boy. boy. There is oh, no television. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, my. Okay. Well, it means showgirls right out of the gate. Showgirls, of course. Yes. Oh, boy. I'm trying to think of other movies Elizabeth Berkeley's been in. Um, Chris, this is insane. This, this is, is really insane. hard. <laughs> God. Um, okay. Elizabeth Berkeley. I feel like I can see her in something else, but I'm... I'm God damn it. Um, so there's no TV. So Saved by the Bell is not on there. No TV. Oh, man. I don't know if I know any other Elizabeth Berkley movies. Um, All right. Let's, I'm going to start with some I, I picked. I picked Elizabeth Berkley for a specific <laughs> reason for you. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Perhaps because I'm not giving you this hint yet because you haven't had a second wrong answer yet. Uh-huh. But because of uh, the name of your podcast, there might be is something on a, here. Is she in a 99 movie? She indeed is. Oh my god. Now I feel even worse about this. Because I don't think she's been in one that we've covered so far. Um, I feel like you've probably done this movie already. But... I'd be surprised if you haven't done this movie. Oh boy. Um, okay. Is she playing herself? No. Okay. Because I thought maybe she was in like the Muse or something like that. You um, have done this episode back in 2018. 
Oh, Jesus. Yes. <laughs> um, I feel really bad about this now. Okay. Um, you shouldn't, because, like, she's not really well-known for this movie, but it's, like, it's a major auteur, but it's not one of his, like, major movies. Okay. It was a Christmas release. Oh, is she in Any Given Sunday? Yes. She is indeed in Any Given Sunday. Okay, okay, yes. Okay, yeah, she plays... Right, she's, like, having sex with Al Pacino. It's super weird. Oh, God. She's, like, a prostitute or something like that. Okay. Oh, great. Oh, God. Okay, so... I'll go ahead and give you your other years. Your other years are 1996, so the year after Showgirls, Mm -hmm. and 2001. Okay. Um, The year after Showgirls, I feel like, and maybe I'm making this up, but I feel like she was in, like, an action movie or something. No, this is a comedy, and I think her casting is definitely uh, very aware of the whole Showgirls of it all. Mm. This is a female-led comedy. A, a very successful comedy. female-led comedy, I will say. Very big hit. Okay. It's hmm. a female-led comedy. It's a very big hit. It's in 1996. There was sequel talk, but there was also talk that the stars didn't get along while filming, so that's maybe why there wasn't a sequel. Okay. <laughs> they all reunited at the Oscars to present one of the greatest original song lineups of all time. My God. A big female comedy led. So it was an ensemble. Y- yes, uh, with like. Yes, but it's, it's a trio of women uh, at the forefront. God. One of whom has like a very, very, very definite connection to one of Cameron Crowe's. Uh, the actresses that he's cast. Is this like a, is it a Kate Hudson thing? Uh, keep following that. How would, uh, how would uh, this I'm actress sorry, be so connected to Kate guys. Hudson? Yeah. Who's the actress that's most prominently connected to Kate Hudson? Connected to oh, Kate so Hudson. is she in First Wives Club? Yes. Yes. First Wives Club. I didn't know she was in that. I've she that. plays the woman that uh, Goldie Hawn's husband, who I believe sure. is Victor Garber, <laughs> yes. is having an affair with. Yes. Victor Garber? Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. I'm Monique, and you can play my mom. Oh, yeah. My okay, so yeah. 2001 is when the next one is? is what... 2001. Okay, let's... Um, uh, what are one of the other lead actresses of the movie we were just talking about? Okay, Bette Midler or Diane Keaton? Yeah. Diane Keaton, 2001... What's maybe one of Diane Keaton's more problematic connections? Oh, is it a Woody Allen movie? It is indeed a Woody Allen movie from 2001. Small Time Crooks? Not Small Time Crooks. Hollywood Ending? You're really uh, No, that's Deborah Messing. Yeah, you're you're oh, you're God. circling the block around oh, this. She's You've got like Curse of the Jade Scorpion, isn't she? Curse of the Jade Scorpion. Oh my. That's a real murderer's row in four movies, let me tell you. Uh, yeah, that is <laughs> crazy. I, I never yeah. saw Curse of the Jade Scorpion. That was one I, I tried. That, I, I was seeing all good. of those Woody Allen movies in that era, but I did not see that one for whatever reason. That is interesting. She's, yeah. I gotta say, I mean, obviously there's been a reclamation on, on Showgirls many, many times over. And, and I do, like, I don't want to say I feel sorry for Elizabeth Berkeley because that's the wrong way to put it. Like, I, I just feel like she didn't get a fair shot. 
Let's put it that was way. it? I don't think it was during COVID, but I think it was like before COVID, where they do in LA, I guess those like graveyard screenings where they yes. have people show up, yes. and she showed up. And, like, it makes me almost emotional to talk about it. She showed up for Showgirls mm. and, like, you know, talked a little bit about how she, you know, had such a fraught relationship with the movie. Yeah. But, like, now she appreciates how much it makes people happy and they enjoy it. And, like, nice. she, like, it got a bunch of publicity because she showed up. And, like, of course, it's, like, basically a rowdy screening and she had a good time. I'll say this also. She seems to be having a really good time on the new Safe by the Bell. And I think she's really good on it. And I'm happy for her for that. So I, I think she's, you know, yeah. I, I, I guess it's just one of those... It's so unfortunate that Joe Rules was received the way it was received for a bunch of reasons. I mean, that movie is, I think, does have some problematic issues like i do think there's some stuff going on in that movie that i think is is not good yeah um but i but i also just feel like um she just really got taken to task for it and it, it, it's it was well like, even with the appreciation for the movie it still is kind of largely at her expense like it's it for as much as like people are just like paul verhoeven secret masterpiece yada 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 and it's yeah. just like Oh, but like even still, like Elizabeth Berkeley is terrible in it. And it was just like, oh, yeah. Nobody's saying secret brilliant right. performance, right? And, and exactly. there's also the. I mean, it does feel like the the most memed Saved by the Bell clip is the is her on stage. Yes, that's true. That is very true. <laughs> so um, there is that. Yeah, but I think she, both she and Mario Lopez, I think are doing uh, are doing very funny work in the right. Saved by the Bell, which is a show that like I was very prepared to just like completely set aside, and it turned out to be very funny. So I was happy with that. You Thank go. you, Phil, for taking the time to talk to us about this movie. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, so you for, for bringing Elizabeth Town to the table. I, of course, uh, adore your podcast. So tell all our listeners where they can uh, where they can find it. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on to talk about this movie. I know that, you know, this is probably not one that you guys were super excited to talk about, but I... but I Oh do. my God, no, I was very excited <laughs> to get into this movie. So I, I, I really do appreciate uh, the opportunity to, uh, to to fight for it a little bit, at least for the things that I did like. But um, yes, our podcast, myself and Kenny Nybar, we have a podcast called Podcast Like It's 1999, where we talk about all the pop culture from 99. Uh, we also have a Patreon called Podcast Like It's 1989. Uh, where we are talking about uh, yeah, the, the, the bigger releases from 1989. Um, Joe has been on for uh, for uh, Deadcom. He's on our. He will be on the 89 Patreon Deadcom, uh, and he um, was also on for. Uh, other than The Messenger, why do I feel like you came on for another movie? Am I crazy? Well, I've done a couple of West Wings with you. The West Wings, that's what it was, yeah. Yes. So, uh, yeah, you can you can hear uh, you can hear him on that podcast, uh, and uh, it's on you know all the various ways that you listen to podcasts. Exactly, you guys know where to find podcasts by now. So, yes, <laughs> all right, thank you again so much, Phil. That is our episode. If you want more, this had Oscar Buzz. You can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterbox at Chris V. File. That is F-E-I-L. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd. 
as Joe Reed reads spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So queue up Moon River and tap us out some nice words, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more books.